is known for its rocky coastline, beautiful forests, and brutal winters. It's the home of Stephen King, Alan's Coffee Brandy, and the Best Lobster. To the people who come from away, it's a vacation. But to those of us who live here, it's the way life should be. Welcome to Vacation Land. My name is AJ, and I will be your guide through the history and mysteries of Maine. On the southern coast of Maine, in Saco Bay, sits an island with a granite lighthouse. Not an uncommon sight, there are 65 lighthouses in Maine and thousands of islands, and they each have their own story to tell. The Wood Island Light is the state's second oldest, Portland Head Light being the first, and it is the 11th oldest in the nation. It has seen its fair share of history. Eight acres of Wood Island was purchased by the U.S. government in 1806 to build a lighthouse. It became a working light by 1808, guiding vessels into Winter Harbor and the Saco River. Octagonal and covered in shingles, and with complaints that it rocked in poor weather, it didn't last long in the harsh elements off Maine's coast. The tower and its small dwelling house made it to 1835, when plans for a new rubblestone tower and single-story house were made. This new tower was erected in 1839, but the complaints continued. In his 1843 report to Congress, the engineer wrote about the poor condition of the light. It was built on uneven ground with decaying woodwork and bad mortar. The keeper's house was in a similar state. The windows leaked, and the cellar hadn't been constructed with a floor, so it was always muddy. The leaks had continued by the time the buildings were inspected in 1850, so plans to rebuild the tower a third time were made in August of 1854. If only leaks had been the only issue. It was Eben Emerson's final year as keeper of Wood Island Light. March 16, 1865, Emerson had gotten up to trim the wicks of the lighthouse lamps. It was roughly one in the morning. The sea was rough with thick fog. He opened the door to check on the condition of the storm and heard voices. He yelled out into the dark night and rushed to his own small rowboat. Being unable to haul it into the surf on his own, he rushed to his neighbor's house. Together they were able to launch the small vessel and followed the sound of people in distress. The Edith Ann was a brig out of Nova Scotia. They had come from Puerto Rico to deliver sugar and molasses to Portland, Maine, not Oregon. The ship had foundered on Washburn Ledge near the lighthouse. As Emerson and his neighbor came upon the wreck, they could see that the main deck was submerged and the crew were desperately clinging to the rigging. It took several attempts, but Emerson managed to leap aboard the Edith Ann. Only one lifeboat remained, and it was going to be hard to get to. Emerson urged the men to climb up into the remaining vessel, leaving the captain and his mate to cut them loose. As Emerson made his way back to his own small boat, he heard another cry of distress. 
Below deck, the cabin was filling with water, but it didn't stop Emerson from rushing to the rescue. He found two guinea pigs, and with no other options, stuffed them into his pockets before returning to the deck. Meanwhile, Emerson's neighbor had been attempting to maneuver the small rowboat closer to the wreck. The rough sea had been difficult when there were two of them rowing. With only one, it had become damn near impossible to keep the small boat in place. It took several attempts, but Emerson finally made it back aboard his own vessel. The frightened crew was still dangling in their own lifeboat. The two-man rescue team of Emerson and his neighbor returned to the task at hand. They tossed the men in the lifeboat a rope and told them to secure it. When a high wave came, Emerson yelled, Cut loose! The ship's captain and mate then cut the ropes, and the lifeboat rode the wave down. The Edith Ann, however, was reduced to pieces by the crashing surf. For his heroism, Emerson was awarded a pair of brass binoculars by the British government. Fred Milliken lived on Wood Island with his wife and stepchildren. In his 30s, Milliken was a game warden and fisherman, and he had recently rented out a small building meant to be a henhouse to two young men, Howard Hobbs and William Moses. It was June 2, 1896. The two young men, Hobbs and Moses, had been visiting Old Orchard Beach. They returned to Wood Island late in the afternoon, intoxicated. Milliken had reportedly greeted them when they returned and asked to speak to Hobbs about his late rent payments. Hobbs brushed the older man off and returned to the shack he shared with Moses. Hobbs then picked up his rifle and told Moses they should go see Milliken. Moses urged the other man to leave his gun, but Hobbs told him he might get a shot at some birds, and so he took it with him when they left. They would meet Milliken in his own yard, his wife in the doorway watching them. Milliken asked Hobbs if the gun was loaded. Hobbs told him it was not. Milliken stepped towards Hobbs with the intention to check if the rifle was loaded or not, when Hobbs raised the gun and fired at the other man. Mrs. Milliken and Moses helped the wounded man inside. Upon realizing how horribly wounded her husband was, she sent Moses off with her son to fetch a doctor from the mainland. Hobbs, sobered by what he had done, attempted to assist Mrs. Milliken. Hobbs removed the dying man's boots at his request, but when Mrs. Milliken asked the younger man to give her the gun, he threatened to shoot her too. Desperate and angry, she told Hobbs to go to the lighthouse keeper, Mr. Orcutt, and turn himself in. There are a couple different accounts of how this ended. One, Hobbs told Orcutt about what had transpired, and the keeper rushed to the Milliken household. He arrived in the last minutes of Milliken's life, or Milliken died before Hobbs left for the lighthouse, and Orcutt told the man to turn himself in. However it happened, 45 minutes after the shot had been fired, Milliken was dead. Upon finding out about Milliken's death, Hobbs returned to his little shack and killed himself. This is the most commonly accepted end to the story, though some reports say he killed himself in the lighthouse when he went to tell the keeper about what he had done. Moses returned shortly after to find both Milliken and Hobbs dead. He found a note from Hobbs, which bade him goodbye and asked him to deliver a note to a young woman he had been courting.
are those that claim the island must be cursed. Rumors of a fisherman who had lived a solitary life on the island, going to a hotel in Sako to commit suicide, and a brawl among fishermen which led to fire so powerful it was seen for dozens of miles. To be fair, in my own research, these aren't nearly the worst stories I've heard about the cursed islands that sit just off the coast of Maine, but there are a number of ghost stories for this one. Haunted Rooms America reports, Keepers who have lived in the Wood Island Lighthouse say that unexplained shadows appeared, as well as unusual moaning. Other reports say that sometimes locked doors fly open and gunshots are heard. In her review of the lighthouse, Allison Colby Campbell writes about the stories told by guides for the island. They both told us about the ghosts that inhabit the house and the island. The spirits may enter through a closet portal, as determined by a visit several years ago by the New England Ghost Project. Most recently, construction workers on the house renovation quickly gave up on their plan to sleep on site to avoid the commute and save time after being kept up all night by mysterious voices and the sound of people running throughout the building. While active lighthouse keepers Russ and Terry Lowell attributed the loss of dozens of wax pencils needed to post weather updates to a ghostly prank, and ultimately found an enormous batch of them tucked in a hidden storage space. In an article for Seacoast Online, outreach coordinator for the Friends of Wood Island Lighthouse Kathleen White recounts the visit from the New England Ghost Project. We took the boat over and stayed overnight. Different events indicated there is paranormal life on the island, White said. The investigators had brought various voice detection and thermal imaging devices with them. Of the several paranormal events that were witnessed that night, White was most spooked by the appearance of a spirit who kept repeating, I didn't mean to do it. The New England Ghost Project is a group out of Massachusetts. In their first visit to Wood Island, Ron Kolek led Maureen Wood, medium, Leo Monfret, photographer, Karen Mossy, EVP specialist, and Dan Parsons, who managed the infrared equipment. The team claims they don't know specifics about the crime that took place on Wood Island all those years ago, only that there was a murder-suicide. Maureen Wood seemed to immediately feel a response from whatever paranormal spooks resided in the lighthouse. The medium became winded on the stairs, apparently overwhelmed by the energy in this place. At the top of the lighthouse, she reports that there is the spirit of a man before doubling over, claiming he's trying to move inside her. Kolex shouts, get out of her. Despite the intensity of the moment, the investigators continue on. Karen Mossy had been recording everything as the temperature started dropping. Kolek turned to Wood and asked her if the spirit they're encountering was the keeper of the lighthouse. Wood replied, he thought himself a keeper, but he wasn't. Kolek asked the spirit, did you die by your own hand? Yes, a head injury, Wood says. Did you murder your wife? Kolek asks. No, no, I told her no, Wood groans and begins gasping. Soon, the ghost hunters abandoned the tower. Woods claimed she was exhausted. Reviewing the tape from her recorder, Mossy excitedly yells, Did you hear that? He said, I think the shot got them. The evidence was ambiguous and not convincing for most, but the members of the New England Ghost Project seemed excited about their encounters. Certainly excited enough that they came back for a second round. Prior to returning to Wood Island, Ron Kolek received a call from a man somewhere in Missouri. 
The man told Kolek that he had a dream. In this dream, someone was holding four girls hostage in a shack in a remote location. The man told Kolek about how each girl was murdered, that a man's face kept reappearing, and there were two words which kept repeating, Wood Island. Missouri man tells Kolek that it was his face that kept appearing, but that he didn't know that it was Kolek until he later googled Wood Island. Kolek was excited to receive the call and wrote down the story. He wanted to keep it from Wood, the medium, so he put it in an envelope and mailed it to an undisclosed location. And on September 30th, the New England Ghost Project returned to Wood Island. Wood wanted to start on the boardwalk. She had had an encounter there on their previous trip. Wood pulled out a piece of citron which hung from a chain and began dousing. According to Wood, a female spirit had approached the group. Through the process of dowsing, Wood determined that this woman was murdered on the island by an Indian and that the spirit was lost. When the spirit apparently left, Wood said that she felt pulled to the northern end of the island. The boardwalk, however, left Wood frustrated when she couldn't reach the area she wanted. When they did finally reach an area where Wood could step off the boardwalk, she began dousing again. The spirit which the group encountered this time told Wood that a shack used to be here, and there were bodies of girls buried there. The girls which had apparently been murdered were killed separately, and the shack had later been set on fire. Kolek reacted instantly. He hadn't told anyone about the call from the Missouri man. Wood said, The people that died here were stuck on the island and held against their wishes. They say they'll want their story to be told. I have been unable to find anything further on this apparent series of murders. The group then returned to the house. On their previous trip, they had been able to capture a photograph of what they claimed to be a spirit in the basement. Kolek wanted Wood to try to communicate with the spirit again. When Wood began dousing, she seemed to sense that the spirit didn't want to communicate with them. She's angry because we caught her on film last year, she said. In an article by Annie Ellis, who had accompanied the ghost hunters, she writes, And now the part that made me a believer. We went up into the attic because of interesting activity that had taken place there. In complete darkness, all you could hear was the crashing of waves outside. Maureen Wood asked that we all hold hands. Suddenly it sounded as if rain was pouring outside. And as soon as it had started, it stopped. The harsh pang of a coin dropping was heard right behind my head. And suddenly Maureen's hand grasped mine so tightly, I almost let out a yelp. Suddenly Maureen was not Maureen. Her voice sounded more like a man than a woman and she had taken on a Spanish accent. The spirit she was channeling said he had been on this island 360 days. While it is up for interpretation, we assume he meant he was there that many days before he died. He said his name was Roger, and that the year was 1762. He was very angry because his captain had deserted him and his shipmates on the island. He explained that there were ten of them to begin with, and was one of three left. Kolek asked him what flag he flew under. I fly under no flag, said the spirit. If you fly under no flag, that must mean you're a pirate, said Kolek. Choose your words carefully, sir, warned the spirit. Then the spirit began to repeat over and over again how cold it was. As he said this, Maureen's hand began to get colder and colder, and her grip got tighter and tighter. I started to wonder if it was safe for her body temperature to be so low. 
Ron then told the spirit that it needed to go. Ellis reports that the spirit screamed and Wood's body began writhing. She equated the experience to the movie The Exorcist, but when Wood was freed from the spirit's influence, her body temperature returned to normal and a bluish acrid smoke wisped through the air. With these two hunts happening in 2005 and 2006, the New England Ghost Project reportedly wanted to return for a third time. If they did, I can find no evidence of it. leave you with this one final tale about the Wood Island Lighthouse and its keepers. The ships that passed Wood Island Lighthouse would signal with three blasts of the whistle and salute, and in return the keeper would ring the bell. Keeper Orcutt was known for more than his part in the murder-suicide. He also owned a dog named Sailor. Mostly black and having lived almost his entire life on the island, Sailor was something of a mongrel. He was good company for Orcutt, though and the keeper asked for a little more from his companion, until one day when Orcutt didn't hear the customary salute from a passing vessel. But Sailor did. The dog tried to get the keeper's attention, running to the door and howling. Again he ran to the door and again he howled, but Orcutt didn't seem to know what had the dog's attention. Fed up with the keeper, Sailor took the rope in his mouth and rang the bell himself. It became a common occurrence for ships passing to see the dog running to the bell and pulling on it vigorously. Even when the fog is low and thick on the water, Sailor would ring the bell without fuss. The dog seemed to enjoy having a task, often carrying letters or other small things in his mouth. Orca often made remarks about what a wonderful companion Sailor was. When Sailor passed, it was in Orca's arms. The keeper himself followed his beloved dog just a few months later. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed your visit. Can you believe we've made it to 10 episodes already? Sources for all episodes are available at pinetreepodcast.com and click on Vacation Land at the top of the page. As always, music is by Lurker. You can find more of his work at lurker.bandcamp.com and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at vacationlandpod.com.